0: Hallelujah, what a Savior we have in Christ Jesus. Church, turn with me to John chapter 20 this morning. John chapter 20, we are coming to the next to last chapter in our two and a half year journey through the Gospel of John. Though we've taken uh, many breaks, I know it's been such an encouraging time in my life to study this book in its depth, and I, ha- I hope it has been uh, for you. We are going to be uh, begin reading at verse 1, and we're going to read all the way to verse uh, 10, but we're going to stop the sermon at verse 9. So we're going to be preaching 1 through 9, but reading verses 1 through 10. So uh, if you have your Bibles out, and if you're standing or sitting, um, if you would stand together so we can read God's Word, uh, knowing that He has uh, spoken to us, His people Um, this wonderful, glorious word. Let's read verses 1 through 10 together. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb. While it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth And they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. So Simon Peter also came, following him, and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their homes. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that your word does endure forever. And Lord, as we look at just this um, this narrative of, of what happened that glorious day when you rose again. I want to pray that it would be such rich application for us to take away from knowing that you are alive, knowing that you have conquered death, that you have uh, conquered what should be every man's worst fear. Um, and yet, Lord, we have opportunity here to praise you for your glorious work, knowing how central and important this truth of the resurrection is to our day-to-day lives. Lord, I pray for our people. I pray as they hear this, you would strengthen them. And I pray if there's anyone who does not know you who is listening to this, Lord, that they would come to know you and trust in you by faith. pray all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you. If you're standing, you may be seated. The resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, the resurrection of jesus christ is by far the most central and important truth of christianity uh, without the resurrection of jesus there is no such thing as salvation in fact uh, paul clearly implies that very truth when he tells us in romans uh, chapter 4 verse 25 that jesus christ was raised from the dead uh, because of or for our justification Even as we've been examining on Wednesday nights, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, there is no Christianity and there is no hope for any of us, whether we say we are in Christ or we aren't. There's no hope. In fact, let me just pull a couple verses from 1 Corinthians 15, that wonderful text we'll be examining, and, and see what the Apostle Paul says about the central truth and reality of Jesus' resurrection. He says, if Christ has not been raised, in verse 14, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is also in vain. So Paul says, if, if Christ hasn't raised from the dead, what we're doing right now makes absolutely no sense, and your faith in, in God and in anything makes no sense. Verse seventeen: If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. If this is the truth, and there, there still is a God, by the way, who's still on the throne and still has wrath over all. But if Christ is not raised from the dead, your sins are still on you, and you still must pay that penalty. And finally, boldly in verse nineteen of 1 Corinthians fifteen, he says, "If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of most of all men most to be." pitied. Church, the importance of the actual death, the actual burial, and the actual resurrection of Jesus, it just simply cannot be overestimated. If Jesus didn't truly die, if he didn't really come back to life, then friends, eat, drink, and be merry. Don't come back to church because the only thing you have to look forward to now would be death. And that's all. So this is a central truth in reality. And so what I'd like to do is dive in and look at some of these details that we see in our text. But before I do that, just some introductory thoughts and some things I think would be good for us to point out. I'd like to first examine the extent of Christ's enemy's fear of the resurrection. Uh, Look at this. The extent of Christ's enemy's fear of the resurrection They wanted to ensure that there would be no such thing as an actual or even an alleged resurrection. We read that in our text earlier during our scripture reading in Matthew chapter 27 verses 62 through 66. Listen to what we're told here. It says, now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they gathered together with Pilate and they said, sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I'm going to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, His disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He is risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard? Go and make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard they set a seal on the stone. See, as far as Christ's enemies were concerned, they did everything possible to put an end to this Jesus stuff. Uh, humanly speaking, there was no way anybody was going to even try and prove the smallest amount of validity to what Jesus had said about his own resurrection. They were going to see to it that this was the case. That leads me to another introductory thought here though. It's it's also worth mentioning that very thing that that Jesus predicted his own death and, and resurrection, not just once but really a whole host of times throughout his earthly ministry he didn't just predict this one time or two times he predicted his death and specifically his resurrection several times throughout his earthly ministry in fact it was such a well-known teaching of Jesus that as we just saw in Matthew 27 even his enemies knew it his enemies knew that he had said he was going to rise from the dead one passage that will make this point quite clear for us, you can't put it any more plainly than this, is found in Matthew twenty seventeen through 19 Listen to what Jesus says in that text. The Bible says, As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. This is one of what I believe to be around nine, at least nine, accounts in which Jesus said this sort of thing. Uh, Plenty of times Jesus made the proclamation that he would not only die, but that he would be raised again on the third day. So, Getting into our text this morning, um, we want to look at some of these details that John provides, but uh, just like the other times we've seen in John when we compare to other gospel accounts, John doesn't provide us with, with many details, things like we saw in Matthew, like the angels rolling back and sitting on the stones, or guards falling down like dead men in fear of what they saw. He doesn't tell us about the guards being bribed by the officials, telling the lie, the disciples stole the body away. uh, John doesn't spend time on those or uh, related details like that. Now, why? Why doesn't John spend time with that? Well, let's think about what his focus is. And that's really our main idea for this morning's passage. John's focus is centered upon the historical and objective discovery of the empty grave. That's his focus. Uh, John has a central focus here, and that is to bring forth to you the historical and objective discovery of the empty grave. It's what he wants us to zero in on. He wants us to focus on the fact that the tomb is empty. The grave of Jesus is empty, and friends, church, family, it's still empty today. You know, many critics fail to appreciate uh, the fact that All of the people that John might have drawn attention to as the first witness to this empty tomb, he draws our attention to Mary. That's one of the first details we see here, the first witness that we see in this account. The first person to have seen this was Mary. Now why is that relevant and important for us? Well, despite the fact that she was a woman in a culture where a woman's words were not valid, and and, and number two, this was also a woman who had a questionable, uh, disreputable past, Um, he still lays her as the first, uh, describes her as the first witness of the resurrection. And think about this, see, if if a mere man had had written this account with the goal in mind to promote his religion by his own doing, there's no way he would have chosen Mary Magdalene as this first witness. Yet of all the people that the Lord could have chosen to discover the empty tomb, he chose her, Mary. No doubt the Lord did this as it is written in his word, 1 Corinthians 2. 127, that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen uh, the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Now, I'm not going to dive in too much to Mary Magdalene this morning, because Lord willing, that'll be a lot of our focus uh, next week, but I wanted to make mention that this this is the first witness that Jesus decides to reveal his resurrection to. Um, And so we come to the empty grave, all four gospels tell us that the, the tomb is empty on this day, uh, uh, on this glorious Sunday morning, there was no body in that grave. And so the million dollar question for us, of course, just reading this naturally, is where did the body of Jesus go? What happened? Where did, where did his body go? If we're reading this without eyes of faith, and we're just reading this as a story, it's a natural question for any man to ask. What really did happen to the body of Jesus? Well, there's several different options. Uh, One one thought for many of the critics of of the resurrection is uh, the fact that the disciples took him. So did the disciples take the body of Jesus? But when we really peel that back and try to make sense of that, there is no sense to be had. See, some would like to believe the disciples stole the body from the grave, but let's ask this question, what in the world would it have profited them to steal the body of their dead Lord? Uh, History tells us that many of these same disciples ended up suffering martyr deaths for their beliefs in the risen Lord. So, so what would cause them to be willing to die if they knew in the back of their mind we stole the dead body of Jesus and laid him in a corner somewhere? It doesn't make sense at all, does it? Why in the world would somebody be willing to die a martyr's death for something they knew in their hearts to be, in fact, false? And there are many other Um, critiques and questions, but really, friends, there's only one plausible explanation for why the tomb is empty, and we know it. The, The only plausible explanation for the empty tomb is the one given to us in the scriptures, that Jesus raised from the dead, and he straight up left that grave. That Jesus raised from the dead, that's the only plausible explanation. And listen, I I get it. I I realize that most people in the world aren't willing to believe this is exactly what took place. I mean, we see this in our culture. We see Easter being designated to a, a, a secular holiday. That's not really having anything to do with the fact that Jesus is alive, which is what we celebrate but friends, this is the only plausible explanation, and, and though people may not be willing to believe this, remember this, friends, it's our responsibility, really it's our privilege to share this truth with others whenever we're given an opportunity. And I feel like we live in this, this social media world uh, to where we feel like sharing the truth of the resurrection is as simple as, as putting up a, a picture of an empty tomb on Easter, But, friends, remember this. If we learn anything during this time, can we learn that that social media isn't actual human interaction? (laughs) That it it is no way suffice to say that that is is real. I'm telling you this we are charged with a responsibility and privilege to tell someone personally, that the reason we celebrate uh, Easter is because we genuinely, realistically believe that Jesus Christ, the God-man raised from the dead and that he is alive today. This is what we believe. We know this to be true. And so let me encourage you, tell someone that. Don't simply tell someone, uh, happy Easter or happy resurrection day. Tell them this Easter, tell them I believe that Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the God-man, fully God, fully man, is alive today. That he really actually died and he really actually resurrected from the grave. Let me encourage you to do that. Now, let me tell you what's going to happen when that happens. You're going to get some looks, right? There are going to be some skeptics and critics, even in the South, even in our Bible Belt Society, there's going to be some who critique you, who make fun of you, who are not susceptible to believe that this is the truth. And let me encourage you, when that happens, don't allow yourself to become overly discouraged. Because people aren't willing to believe in the glorious resurrection of our Lord. You have a responsibility Your responsibility is sticking to sharing the word of God. That's your responsibility, friends. And so, so many of them, the great majority of people in our world today, don't believe this message. And so we're not to be discouraged by those things. We just simply stick to the word. Remember, the word is where the power is at. The word of God is, is, is what brings forth the, the power of God to the spirit of God to work. I love what Dr. Greg Bonson said. He, he put it pretty well for us in an article I read this week. And let me just warn you, this is one of those lengthy quotes. Uh, so let me encourage you to listen. He says this. He says, God's word makes it clear that man's rebellion against the truth is morally, not intellectually rooted. The sinner needs a changed heart and spiritually opened eyes, not more facts and reasons. Moreover, proving the resurrection as a historical fact would have no effect as far as engendering belief in God's word. The only tool an apologist needs is the word of God. For the sinner will either presuppose its truth and find Christianity to be coherent and convincing given his spiritual condition and past experience, or he will reject it and never be able to come to a knowledge of the truth. If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded through one who rose from the dead. Luke 16, 31. God's word is sufficient in giving the sinner the necessary witness which can lead him to conversion. If he will not hear the inspired word of God, neither will he be moved by a human argument for the resurrection. A proof of the resurrection is certainly no more powerful than the living and bodily presence of the resurrected Savior before one's own eyes. And yet, as we learn from Matthew twenty-eight seventeen, that even some of the 11 disciples of Christ doubted while in his resurrected presence. When one is not ready to submit to God's self-attesting word, no amount of evidence can persuade him, even compelling evidence, for Christ's resurrection. When Christ met with two travelers on the road to Emmaus, listen to this, and found them doubtful about the resurrection, he rebuked them for being slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken, Luke 24, 25. Rather than offering them compelling evidence for his resurrection, By immediately opening their eyes to recognize him, Jesus, he made their hearts burn within them by expounding to them the scriptures. My point, point, the point I think he's trying to make is this, when, when you tell somebody that you believe that Jesus actually physically rose from the dead, they're, they're bound to get into an argue of semantics with you. That's impossible. We have no evidence that that happened to happen so long ago. And friends, uh, don't take the bait in order just to get into an argument with more facts and reasons. What you need to do in that moment is to share with them the great redemptive story of the gospel. Use that as an opportunity to say, let me tell you what I believe to be true and share with them Christ and Christ resurrected. Church, what needs to be at the center of our discussions or our apologetics, our defense of the faith, has to be the scriptures. It's not bad to learn all kinds of different evidences and facts of our faith. They ought to strengthen the faith of believers, but even those things, they're supplemental to the scriptural testimony. The Lord has spoken what people need to hear in his word and in the gospel message. But unfortunately, what we see, it's a sad truth. as So many Christians are unwilling to speak the truth from God's word because they're fearful or they're fearful of being ridiculed, really. They're fearful for being so naive as to believe something that this to be the word of God from heaven above so, brothers and sisters, let me, let me just encourage you with one more encouragement here. Don't give up sharing God's word with this unbelieving world, especially due to fear of man or ridicule. We see that as a, as a common theme for many people who just struggle with that. And listen, I've been there. I've had many experiences where I've struggled with that very thing. But remember the example of Noah. Noah preached God's salvation message for for such much of his life really and and it resulted in the salvation of eight souls out of the whole world eight souls now of course we desperately pray that there are many future believers out there just waiting to be brought into the kingdom of our Lord and we need to be about sharing his truth with the lost. But friends, remember, if the Lord isn't changing hearts through the ordained and converted, or converting ordinance of His Holy Scriptures, how dare we think that the problem is with the sufficiency of the Scriptures. People will come to faith. They will. And, and we can rest assured that we have not gone wrong when we have made it our practice to share with them God's Word. Let's look at a few more details provided for us in this text. Uh, one thing we're told, in particular in this text, that's different than many other gospel accounts, is that the stone was removed from the tomb. Now, as we read in Matthew, that text tells us the angel rolled it back and even sat on it. But, but John tells us that by the time he gets there, that it was even removed from the tomb. Not just rolled back, but gone altogether. And the fascinating thing about that is this this stone was Was enormous. It was huge. In fact, in Mark sixteen chapter chapter sixteen verse uh, four, the text says that it was extremely large. This stone was so large that, in fact, one variation of that text, which some ascribe to the Gospel of Mark, states that twenty men could not have moved it. So it's no wonder that when the women arrived there, they were concerned as to who was going to roll back the stone, the tomb, to minister to the body of Jesus. It was huge. And I think it's important for us to understand that the stone wasn't rolled away so that Jesus could be let out of the tomb. Jesus didn't need the angel to move the stone or to roll the stone away. In fact, he didn't need to have the stone removed at all. This is a man who walked on water, and, and later on we, we even see how he enters into rooms when the doors are locked and shut. Jesus didn't have to have that stone removed for his sake. Rather, that stone was removed for our sake. Uh, It was removed not to let Jesus in, but to, to let others in so they might see and testify that the grave was in fact empty. Folks, isn't it strange that the greatest news this world has heard or will ever hear took place at a cemetery? That's the way God has done it. Because in the place of death, we see the message of life. Jesus conquered death. And if, if we're correct in even just presuming that the stone was, was rolled back at one point and then even taken away, isn't that a marvelous symbol of how Jesus not only just came back to life, but that he fully and finally conquered death altogether? And he fully and finally conquered it to show that death could not and would not ever hold him or his people captive. It's an overwhelming act which displayed the power of God over things physical and spiritual. I want to paint that picture for you because I think it's so important that we know that death could not and would not ever. Hold him, Jesus, or any of his people who are tied to him by faith captive. Friends, that is such good news. Death does not hold you captive if you are in Christ. What a beautiful, beautiful truth. Now, it's also interesting to note how Jesus left his grave clothes behind. It's another detail we see, his folded clothes here. How uh, he even folded one of the pieces of material and laid it aside. And this certainly shows that it wasn't grave robbers who had taken the body of Jesus, as some would allege. In fact, it even proves that whatever happened, it didn't happen in haste. It wasn't a rushed job. Jesus even took his time to fold some of the material that he was wrapped in. You might recall uh, the resurrection of Lazarus we looked at not too long ago from the grave, how he came forth from the tomb, but he was still covered, remember, in his grave clothes. Here we see a resurrection of a different sort. Indeed, it was quite different in many ways. Uh, This resurrection wasn't only temporal, it was eternal. Jesus had so conquered death that he was able to wake up without being bound to even his grave clothes. Lazarus uh, came forward with his grave clothes and Lazarus had to die again, but not so with Jesus. Church, let us see how, how... Even something as simple as this minute detail of the grave clothes and how they were left behind. They they were left behind in order to give us hope. The same way that Jesus left behind these clothes, the day will come for each one of us in Christ Jesus when our bodies will be raised from the dead to leave behind the old and put on the new. Do you understand that? If you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you too one day will experience the glorious resurrection of your body from the dead. Remember what Paul said later on in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14. He says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. What a beautiful, beautiful truth. Let's move on now to... Uh, Verses 8 and 9, where we're going to look at our our last point, and really what continues to be an ongoing theme in this passage. Uh, Verses 8 and 9 of John chapter 20 say this, So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb, uh, then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead." So we're we're told here that that John saw the empty grave, he saw the grave closed, and then he believed. Uh, Really, this theme of seeing and believing will become a prominent theme in in this whole chapter. Uh, Most, if not all, the disciples would not and did not believe without first seeing. Unless we take this the wrong way, I I think we're correct to, to view this as a rebuke to these men more than anything else. They didn't know and understand from the scriptures that Jesus was to rise again from the dead. This this is a mark against them. They should have known. The scriptures were abundantly clear. They should have known in Psalm 16 verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Even Peter at the day of Pentecost ascribes that verse as talking to the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. They should have known Isaiah 53, 11, and 12 are one of our favorite chapters where it says, as a result of the anguish of his soul, the suffering servant, the Messiah, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. This is the way to look at Isaiah 53 to see that the the suffering servant died and he came back to life to enjoy the spoil of the work that he had accomplished. Jesus himself again even told them explicitly, looking back at the Scriptures, uh, how it was that Jonah served as a type, as a picture, looking forward to his resurrection, and in Matthew chapter twelve, verses thirty-nine through forty. But he Jesus answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights. In the heart of the earth. In addition to this, we have a whole host of other passages, as we previously said, where Jesus tells his disciples time and time again that he will die and be raised again. Later on, the, the Apostle Paul and would testify as to what the scriptures teach about the resurrection of Jesus. And he says it like this in 1 Corinthians 15 3 through 4. See if you maybe recognize this. For I deliver to you as of first importance, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. You can listen to Brother Justin's wonderful sermon for that on f- further illustration. Um, they, they should have known that Jesus was to rise from the dead Because as Paul says in in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, when he says according to the Scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. They should have known according to the Old Testament Scriptures that what they teach concerning the Messiah, every part of God's redemptive plan, including the resurrection of the Son, was done according to the Scriptures. In a few more verses, we're going to come to this passage of verse 29 in our text that, that says this. Jesus said to him, being, you know, doubting Thomas, right? Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Church, I I say all this because it's vitally important for us to glean some application here. We are to believe whatsoever the scriptures teach. And we are not to become complacent in our study of them. Friends, it is far better to know and understand what the scriptures have to say about something before you run into a situation that requires your response than to try and learn it on the fly. Oftentimes, there is no time for us to stop and study to know what we are to do in a particular situation. And that is all the more convicting as it concerns those things taught in the scriptures that are basic to our faith. Friends, What an opportunity we have to to really not waste our quarantine in this matter. God is ridding you of excuses for reading your Bible, for praying, for working on your marriage, for growing in Christ's likeness. You are done with excuses. See that as an opportunity. And look towards the scriptures in such a way. George Hutchison commented long ago, this wonderful quote, he says this. He says, it is our great fault. And the fruit of much ignorance, peevishness, and averseness from the way of faith, that plain scriptures, which might comfort us, lie beside us unobserved or not believed and trusted. You see, we are the ones who lose by not knowing what God's word says. We are the ones who pay. We are in a far more advantageous position than the disciples since, since the time of their ignorance. Because we can look at John and Peter and say, "What well, well, didn't you hear? <laughs> How many times did Jesus have to say this before you listened to what he said? Friends, immediately you ought to think of your own life. How many times has Jesus said something to you through his word where you failed to really believe it? We're even at a more advantageous position than they are. The Lord has now poured out his spirit upon on the day of Pentecost in great measure. He's also provided for us his completed canon of scripture. We have the whole Bible now. He has provided his church even with with very competent preachers and teachers of his holy word. So we have, of all people, uh, we are definitely without excuse when it comes to ignorance of God's word. With that said, I, I want us to close with some words from from J.C. Ryle. And if you you know anything through this John series, you know I've leaned on a lot of his quotes quite a bit because they're so rich as it comes to keeping the balance and, and keeping our focus on, on what God's doing here. And look at what he says in this quote. He says, after all, we must remember that true grace, not head knowledge, is the one thing needful. So lest we think that there's uh, that all we need is to know more about the scriptures and not grace. This quote goes directly against that. We are in the hands of a merciful and compassionate Savior who passes by and pardons much ignorance. When he sees a heart right in the sight of God. Some things indeed we must know. Knowledge is important. We, without knowing them we cannot be saved. Our own sinfulness and guilt. The office of Christ as a Savior. The necessity of repentance and faith. Such things as these are essential to salvation but he that knows these things may in other respects be a very ignorant man in fact the extent to which one man may have grace together with much ignorance and another may have much knowledge and yet no grace is one of the greatest mysteries in religion and one which the last day alone will unfold let us then seek knowledge and be ashamed of ignorance but above all let us make sure that like peter and john We have grace and right hearts. Friend, that's the thing we need to focus on. Uh, Yes, we need to to know our scriptures. It's it's such so important. We have to. We need to grow in this. But the most important thing of all is that we have a right heart. And, And guess what? When we have right hearts, when God changes our hearts, we will desire to know his word so much better. It'll be a natural fruit and evidence of that. So, so the, the last question I want to ask you this morning is, do you have a heart that is right with God? Are you, by faith, trusting in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as Lord? Have you given your life over to Him? If not, I desperately pray you'd reach out to us, that you'd reach out to the deacons, and you can find our bulletin information online, and you can call anybody who who belongs to this church, and tell them, I need to know Christ as Savior. But friends, maybe you know that you do have a heart that's right with God, that you have trusted Him by faith, and you are living for Him. Then then the application is is clear here. First, there is such great hope for you to know that Christ is alive, especially as we deal with this pandemic. And so much of us are, are prone to despair and distraught. No, friends, that you do not live as one who has no hope and it is only because of the resurrection that you are guaranteed this hope. So celebrate that and be joyous even in this most difficult of seasons to know that Christ is alive. And friends, do not waste this opportunity to grow in your faith in the Lord. I know many of you are, are still working and, and many of are, are you are at essential businesses that still need to work. But friends, even then, Sit back and focus and recognize with your families, with your spouses, that this is a time where we must be seeking the Lord's face through his scriptures. That we would be prepared and we would use next week as an opportunity, not for us as Christians to be all doom and gloom at the fact that we cannot celebrate this together, but we would see it as an opportunity that we will not be robbed of our joy because Jesus is physically alive. That he is living and he is reigning and he is on the throne. Let that be the song of your life. When you call people, when you come in contact to anyone, even in your family, let them know the fact that your joy will not be taken away from you because Christ is alive and remains alive today. Let that be our song, I pray. Uh, May God grant us the grace to be faithful in proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is risen indeed. Amen. Please join your hearts with me together for prayer. Father, we do thank you for your mighty word. We thank you that you are alive, and because you're alive, there is such hope for us as believers. Lord, would you encourage my heart to know this this week? Would you encourage our people to know and rest in this? That, Father, though um, things seem to be just out of control, and and we seem to be panicking and struggling in so many areas, Father, that you are alive, that we even have this opportunity to, to focus so much more on your resurrection in the midst of difficulty because we know it supplies us with such great hope. Lord a prayer people would know that and experience that. And I pray for any of those who don't know Christ or are not resting and trusting in him by faith that you would work mightily in their lives and they would come to know you by faith. They would repent, they would turn from their sins and they would place their faith, declare and cry out, confess that you are Lord of their life. Lord, would you be faithful to work this, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.